We have been looking at um, the book of Colossians, and uh, as we do that this morning, we're going to continue with our study. Last week, uh, we concluded with verse 19, and uh, you may have, you, you might not remember, but when we got to verse 19 last week, I kind of misspoke and said that we were going to cover the first half of the verse. Well, I was kind of right about that, uh, but you may have noticed that there is a comma at the end of that verse. So really what I did was I stopped mid-sentence in what Paul was saying, all right? And so that's not usually what you want to do when you're going through the scriptures, but it, it really was a bit of a, of a, you know, conclusion to our past message, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But as we move on here, um, I want us to just remember that phrase in verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. This is really both a summary statement and a bridge statement of what Paul uh, had been covering and what he will cover. Paul took everything that he said about the deity of Christ and really condensed it into this, this um, beautiful phrase that we have here. So we just kind of see everything really focused back, and he, and he brings our attention back to, yes, I've talked about him being God and creator and all these things, but right there we see in him, right? For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So I'll say it again, that this phrase bridges the previous section to a new subject, yet the way Paul wrote this, the new subject, the subject of reconciliation that we'll be looking at this morning, it is pur purposefully linked to this very deliberate flow of thought. We might consider this, you know, we talk about a train of thought, right? So I thought, well, I'll, I'll use that. Um, we have a train here. Um, we might think of these subjects as train cars that Paul keeps adding, all right? And so we're on the same track. We really have the same purpose that is leading us, but Paul is kind of adding these new thoughts to what we're talking about. And so that's just kind of, you know, train of thought. I want to get that in your mind as we move forward here and, and uh, as, as we introduce this idea of reconciliation. So what is reconciliation? Let me read for you the next several verses first, and then we'll go back and we'll answer that question. We'll start in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, again, we're speaking of Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what does reconciled mean? As we consider the word, let's first recognize uh, where Paul has placed this section, right? It's, this is purposeful. We concluded last week, in last week's message, by showing that Paul went through the big picture of Christ being God and Christ being the first resurrection from the dead. That's, that's a, 
a big thought, and we took time to take a look at that. Take a look at that. So, what does reconciliation mean? It simply means to restore a relationship by bringing two or more parties together. Two aspects of reconciliation are what Paul is going to be looking at. But I just want us to think about that for a minute. When you have two parties, they're at odds with one another, and they're reconciled. It means that that things are made right. It's just it's that simple. So here we have this reconciliation that Jesus makes for us. He makes our relationship right. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the first aspect that we see here is the reconciliation of all things. Overall, this is the overall reconciling ministry of Christ for fallen creation. Now, I will tell you, it would have been easy just to say, you know what, I can kind of skip over this verse, just kind of let it slide and and we'll just get into the, to the other stuff that's coming up here. And I could have said it was for time and other things, but I just want to tell you in advance, this is not going to be an exhaustive look at this subject. I, 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 there's, just, there's a lot here, folks. There's, you know, some of these phrases, they're just jam-packed. But I want us to keep with the purpose of what we're looking at. So let's just kind of go through this. Man's fall resulted in the fall of creation, Right? That was part of the curse. When man fell, the curse took place. All of creation was affected by that. Jesus' death took care of the general results of sin and positionally restored his relationship with what he made. This hasn't happened yet. But when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it just says that he shed his blood, right? It was partly so that all things at one point would then be reconciled to him, that the relationship would be made right. This even includes the spirit world. Now, let's be clear. There is absolutely no support in Scripture. There's no mention of it, of any level of universal reconciliation or even the redemption of fallen angels, right? We don't see that. We don't see that because of this, Everything and everyone is reconciled. The relationship is made right. We're not talking about a universalist salvation. We're also not talking about somehow uh, this gospel, so to speak, because it's not, is, is being offered to the spirit world. That's not the case. I'm not going to take the time to look at a, a lot of passages regarding this, but there are passages that are clear that we have spirits, and people being cast into the lake of fire in the last judgment. So it is not a universalist thing. The point is that Paul is not speaking of restoring a personal relationship like that of people, like that of those made in his image, created to have fellowship with him. Right? We are a unique being. Christ's death will restore peace between God and the spirit world, between God and mankind, and between God and the material world. Um, what I read for you and would like to read again out of Romans 8 really illustrates that. And so I want us just to take a look at that one more time because I, I think it's a, it's a good um, reminder of, of not only what Christ did, but how it ties into this whole idea of reconciliation. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 again. So I, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of, of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
What is that revealing? That revealing is when we have that final resurrection. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Okay? So it's tied to us. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. We see that, don't we? We see creation groaning. We see the troubles that are out there. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay? So we can relate to this, and creation and actuality is related to us. So we'll see this partially completed during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is something that will take place. I want us to go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2. We're going to look at two passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 1. We'll look at the first four verses. Then, if you want to, you can kind of slip your finger into Isaiah 11. All right? The word of the Lord that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And again, this is Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all peoples shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall uh, they learn war anymore. Is that the case that we had today? No. Now let's continue on to Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass on that day that the Lord shall set his hand against this again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pethros and Cush, Elam and Shinar and from Hamath and the islands of the seas. He shall set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together dispersed in Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the envy... Do I have the right passage there? I, feel like you in verse six I apologize about that. I, I'm off a little bit. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I got the wrong numbers here. Rewind us a little bit. <laughs> it's still good. That's right. <laughs> you read the word of God. You're okay, right? Anyway, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the, and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall, be put, shall put his hand in the viper's den. 
They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. That was what I ended with, what I began with, I need to end with. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we see here that there is a creation aspect to this restoration that will take place. And then Revelation 21 explains how the Lord is going to recreate the material world. So this is what we're looking forward to, but it was already in the mind of the Lord. It's already done. It's already reconciled to him based upon his death. All right? Now, we move forward then with the next subject, which is the reconcile of believers. This is the bulk of what Paul is going to treat back here in Colossians 1. So as we take a look at now uh, the next verse there, Let's just start in verse 19 again. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, uh, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through the death through death, sorry, to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. And we'll stop there for just a moment. So we're looking now at the, uh, at the reconciliation of believers. Now, I keep using that word. Let's kind of make sure that we understand what we're talking about here. Reconciliation, big word for making a relationship right. For restoring a relationship. For having two parties come together and now being in agreement and peace. Okay? So if the reconciling of creation, just t taking this thought for just a moment again, through Christ's work on the cross included a special work of reconciling man to himself, then there would be no need to then refer to this in a specific way, to refer to a specific personal act of reconciliation. So even by the fact that this, this subject is continuing in this way shows that the previous treatment of it was not talking about a spiritual, personal reconciliation, all right? But now here we are, talking about how God has reconciled believers to himself. This is a specific reconciliation, and it's regarding the individuals through the gospel of Christ. Um, what I really found interesting about this passage is that it follows the pattern that Paul set regarding Christ's deity. Let's think about this for a minute. We have Jesus as God. If we look back just a few verses, right? We talked about that. In this passage, we read Jesus is God. Right? Verse 19. Jesus is favored by God as firstborn. Right? That's that favored position. Jesus is favored by God in fully indwelling him. It pleased God. Jesus was favored as being the one where God, God's character fully indwelled him. Well, why? Because he's God, right? Jesus is over all creation. Jesus reconciled creation. Jesus is over all of the church. Jesus reconciled every believer. So as we look at that comparison, I want us to kind of, uh, well, let's, let's think about this for just a minute. When we talk about um, uh, creation, right? Jesus did create 
both the spirit and material world. Right? We see that in the scriptures there. And then we also see that he reconciled both the spirit and material world. So it's, it's really interesting how we see these things going together. And just to, just to remind ourselves about the fullness of God dwelling in Christ, look at what uh, verse 9 says in chapter 2. We're, we're right here in Colossians. Colossians 9, I'm sorry, 2, verse 9. It says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right? So that was reinforced by Paul. Uh, apparently, this is a pretty important topic. Okay? We have one other comparison here. Jesus guaranteed our resurrection because he is the resurrection, right? He was the first one from the dead. And Jesus made possible our presentation. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Jesus is presenting us. But what I want to see just one more time, and yeah, okay, I got a thing for trains. In this, what we're seeing is that there are train cars, right, that, that we're, we see flow here, but then there's different types of train cars. The first one's talking specifically about his deity, and we can kind of see that here in the boxcars, right? And then if you want to just kind of make a mental note of this, just to kind of understand what's going on, then he makes a very similar argument for what we'll just call the oil tankers here, the, the, the reconciliation. So he gives the same pattern, right? And it's just kind of cool to see that, that we've got this comparison here of who Jesus is and what he has done in both of these subjects. One, obviously, much more specific. And if you remember back a little bit, I know maybe some, of, not all of you were here, but we talked about the fact that we started off this part of Paul's um, uh, explanation Right? He's, he's going through talking about being a believer, living a worthy life, all those different things, our hope being in Christ. Oh, and let's talk about Jesus starting off as him as God. Right? I mean, the biggest possible picture we can see. And then talking about a few different aspects about his Godhead, all the way down to the fact that we're in him. Well, now it gets even more specific with that personal reconciliation that personal making right of that relationship between ourselves and God Amen. through his death, all right? So now as we go back to this idea of reconciliation, let's, let's look at just this beautiful concept that we have here. Reconciliation has two sides to it. We're reconciled from something and we're reconciled to something. A married couple can be reconciled from being at odds with another about whatever, restaurants, color something is or whatever to restoring the peace and harmony of that relationship okay it's just that simple so then we what we have described here is our former state he says that you were reconciled but reconciled from what who once were alienated and enemies and in, in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled man this is some strong language here, and it's purposeful. Alienated, separated, completely against, right? I mean, when you're alienated from someone, it, it is a total separation. Our wickedness separated us from God. We were enemies. We weren't working for the Lord. We were working against the Lord. We weren't neutral. 
We became adversaries and worked against God because of our sinfulness. That sinfulness is just inherent in who we are. We're not only born with it, but we do it. And frankly, we like it. It's just who we are. All right? Now, I debated on whether or not I would do this. I'm hoping this, this illustration helps. Um, just, just so you know, I, I got nothing against babies. All right? But I'm... When you're in um, a restaurant and you see a family sitting, you know, over there, and they have a little baby, and by the way, I want to make this very clear from the beginning in case I forget, I don't mind noise. You know, there, there, there's, there's good baby noises, you know what I mean? But so I'm just going to give you this illustration. So we've got this baby, and they're in one of those chair things, you know. Sorry, I'm not a parent. Uh, <laughs> at the table. And they're, and they're banging their legs, and they realize, oh, I make a nice noise doing that, right? And so the parent looks at them and says, you know, hey, stop doing that. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that this isn't exactly what goes, goes to the baby's mind, but I can just imagine them going, you didn't just give me the look, did you? Did, you, did, you, did, did that just happen? <laughs> right? So then what do they do? Not all the time, but sometimes. Sometimes we can maybe even see often. I'm going to bang my legs a little harder and a little faster while I stare at you, <laughs> right? Well, then one of the parents, firmly but gently, grabs one of the legs and says, stop doing that. What's the baby's response? Sometimes. We've got a problem now. <laughs> Not only have you just ruined my life, but I'm going to ruin yours and everyone else is in the restaurant, right? And so this, this inhuman cry comes out of this little package. People are calling 911, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's bad. I mean, this kid just starts screaming. Well, where does that come from? See, we think, oh, they're all nice. They're evil. <laughs> but we all started that way. Okay, now, like I said, I, I like babies, okay? You know, Silas, right? In the nursery, I walk by, I'm like, hey. And you can just tell Silas gives that little baby, like, you know, with his eyebrows, like, I got you. You know what I mean? Like, we're buds. So I'm not, I'm not being nasty. I'm just, I'm just simply saying that it's true. We are all fallen, and you can see it really early in life. Right? That's the point I'm making. We're not neutral. We're against God. We're enemies and we start off that way. So it doesn't matter what our age is. We're enemies. But what I like is how Paul explains this. It shows the unique way about how our relationship was restored to God. Our relationship was made right through a unilateral work of God. Now let me just put that in a little bit simpler terms. God is the one who made our relationship right with him. In his grace, the Lord came our direction and then brought us to himself. We didn't meet God halfway and shake hands and hug. Remember what the passage says. We were hostiles. We were enemies. Sinful man does not come to God and say, can we be friends? It is simply not a part of our nature. We need to read the last part of verse 21 and 22. You he reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death. 
That's how we were reconciled. That's how our relationship was restored and made right based upon our faith in him. He reconciled us through his death. We need to take notice that Paul gives the nature of Christ's death for sin. Christ paid for sin bodily as a sacrifice, but he also paid for sin completely through his death. He didn't just suffer for our sins to pay for them. He suffered and he died. It was complete. Atonement and justification lead to reconciliation. Again, to break down these larger theological words, Jesus sacrificed his body to pay and gave his life to pay the price of our sins to make us right before God. He did that to bring about a restored relationship with him. And what I want us to see through that is this is very personal. Very personal. Faith is the glad response of a restored relationship. Now we're already spilling over into the next phrase that we see there, and it says, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Wow. I'll tell you what, and I'm, I'm being totally serious about this. I mean, yes, when you're talking about people who understood this language when it came to them it spoke a little bit differently we have to explain some of these words the 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 the, the, the meaning was more inherent to the original people that got it but even with that said these things are just packed aren't they i mean what he wrote the economy of words but then also just the, the depth of them is amazing so Paul explains what Jesus did on our behalf through this combination of similar terms, right? He made us holy. That means we were set apart from sin. We were blameless. Blameless. Remember, we're hostiles. We're enemies. We're sinners. But we are declared innocent of our previous crimes. Wow. And we're also above reproach. No one can lay any charge against us that will condemn us to hell. Isn't that amazing? No one can come from our past, including a former youth person, and say, hey, uh, you didn't see what I saw, right? Or, hey, you know, you got to remember that account that happened, right? Or here's a time where Scott really blew it, and there are many Okay? Can't. Can't bring that to my account. So let's not miss this little phrase here. To present you. This taken as a whole means that Christ sacrificed his body and gave his life to make us presentable in the presence of God. Isn't that something? We all remember this, right? When, when we were going somewhere and, you know, mom especially is making sure that we were just right and, you know, they did that like thumb lick. And, and anyway, you get the idea, but they need to be presentable for what we're going to go do, right? Well, on, on a much bigger scale, God cleaned us up, took our sin away, made that relationship right, 
so that we can be presentable to God himself. Man, let's let this sink in for a minute. This is the personal relationship that we have. This is what Jesus did on our behalf. This is what his death meant. It meant a restoration. It meant that we can be in a relationship with the God of the universe. And in his mind, there's nothing between us. Wow. Wow. So then Paul talks about, after this, a continuing faith. Let's look at this. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to, you, to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul explains the reality of what is commonly called the perseverance of the saints, which means that those who truly possess Christ will continue to profess Christ. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Paul is explaining that as a reality in light of the false teaching that is threatening the church. This is in context. He's saying, hey, you need to continue in this. There is this false teaching. Uh, I probably got a little excited up here. I'll, I'll fix that later. I don't know if I need it anymore. Anyway, um, got a, got a bad connection. All right, so um, uh, basically, basically what I'm talking about here is what we would call a conditional statement. It's an if-then statement. We can just as easily say that, uh, that these will be the Lord, that we will be with the Lord since or because they continue in their faith, okay? As he's talking about the Colossian believers, he's saying, you're going to be with Christ because of your continuance with him. The Bible teaches that those who have faith have eternal life. It must follow then that those who have faith will continue in that faith in this present life, correct? If we have faith, we have eternal life. If we have that eternal life, it's going to continue in this life. And then obviously, once we expire, it continues on. Paul confirms this in three ways. He basically says that you have the hope in the gospel. Um, the singular meaning and message of the gospel is central to this, okay? He's, he's basically saying, and, and let's, let's, let's read this real quick. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not, re, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So he's referring back to what he's already said earlier in the passage, way back in the beginning. He's talking about the faith that they have, the hope that they have in the gospel. Now, this one phrase here is a little hard to understand. It says, which was preached to every creature under heaven. Well, I, folks, I, I really did try to study this. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't come down to something conclusive. But what I'll try to give you is this. Many see this as a prophetic statement of the spread of the gospel. But the main point is that the gospel is the same in its entirety around the world. There are no variations. So the point is, this is a universal gospel. Wherever it's preached, if it is the gospel, it's this. If it is the gospel, it's the truth of Christ. Okay? Some say it was everywhere that, that Paul had already preached the gospel, and he kind of used a little bit of hyperbole, right? So everywhere in the world that this has been taught, this is what it's been. Okay? Either way, 
it's consistent. What we're talking about is the gospel itself. And then he says, so, so you're trusting in the gospel, you're trusting in the message, the consistent message of the gospel, but you can also trust in the fact that Paul is saying, me, the one who's given it. I've been divinely appointed to give this gospel. So when we look at this, what I want us to understand is the thrust of this part of the passage is not, all this is good, all this is great, unless, if, right? That's not really what it's talking about. Not that there is an element in that scripture, but primarily when you see these phrases, it's just simply saying, as you continue, right? He's already said, you're faithful, you're growing. I've seen that. I've heard that, right? There's evidence of your faith. So this is yours as you continue. If you continue, because you are continuing, that's the idea. That is the true language here. It's an emphasis on the fact that this is going to continue in your life because of the surety of what Jesus did for you, not, are you right or not? That's not the thrust of the passage. So as then we're moving forward here, and as we're seeing this kind of come to a conclusion, he then gives these few things here and says, and you can trust in these things. Again, there are other parts of Scripture that say, hey, make sure you're in the faith. I get that. But the emphasis is not questioning our salvation. The emphasis is affirming our salvation. So that's the message that we have, but I want to conclude a little bit differently this morning. We've talked about Jesus Christ being, you know, the resurrection. We've talked about him being head of the church. We've talked about this personal aspect of, of reconciliation, of making our life right with him. But let's just remind ourselves of the gospel this morning. And that's really what we're talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. The integrity of the gospel. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know for many of us it's a very familiar passage of scripture, but I think it's important for us to go back here and just get grounded back. I mean, that's what Paul is saying they're grounded in. Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, I declare to you the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Christ, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So here we have hundreds of people who have seen Jesus, right? But what, what, do, we, what do we see when we go back here? Christ, God the Son, came in the flesh. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and rose again. Again, there were possibly um, thousands who saw him die, right? That was a big spectacle. But there were hundreds 
who are there to see the resurrected Christ. And so my question is, do you believe this? Not do you understand this. It is have you placed your confidence in what Jesus, God the Son, did for you? That he took on the punishment that was rightfully yours and died in your place. That he rose again and by doing that showed us that he was greater than even death. And by trusting in Jesus, you too will have eternal life. Is that what you believe? So many people add to or take away from the gospel. Folks, it's simple. It's hard to accept on a human level. Jesus said that multiple times. But it's a simple message. Ultimately, it is when a person rejects Christ and God's gift of salvation in Christ, that is what condemns them to hell. If you have believed this good news of Christ, then your only hope is Jesus. It is only through him you have eternal life. If you have not believed in this good news of Christ, then your only hope is Jesus. Without him, you have no hope. He is our only hope, whether we have him or not. One is realized. One was made possible because he brought us into his family. He made our relationship right, and we responded to all of that in faith. Folks, a simple message. Let's not complicate it. Are you a follower of Christ today or not? I want to encourage you. Consider those claims. Look at what he did for us. Look at your own life. If you attest to this, if you believe this, according to 1 Corinthians 15, you are a follower of his. Again, not just believing that it happened. Not, not, even, not even saying that, that's true. But actually submitting to Christ and saying, you are my Savior. I know it's the only way that I can have my enemy status removed. And now I can have a right relationship. That whole reconciliation that we just talked about. That's the only way it can happen. Christ alone, through faith alone, right? In his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, I don't know the heart of every person in here. We thank you that it's not just about coming to the scriptures every time and saying, am I saved or not? It's a matter of of having that affirmation made so that we can grow. But Lord, there might be someone here, they, they really don't know their status with you. They don't know if they're your follower. I pray that they will seek one of us out and we can share more scripture with them. Maybe even right there sitting, you've made it clear to them. And maybe someone here sees, they understand, they realize, I need to follow Christ. I need to place my confidence in what he did for me. I believe that he is God the Son. I believe he came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, and laid it all down for me. 
and then took it up again so that I could have life. Lord, if you are the one we trust in, you've given us life. Father, we all have a lot of growing to do. We're all working this out. But I pray that as we do that together, that we would just remember the great and glorious relationship that we have, the intimate relationship that we have with you because of what Jesus did for us. What an amazing, glorious, great exchange of being changed from an enemy to a friend, of being changed from being dead to being alive, of being against you and now being able to serve you. All because of Jesus. In Christ's name, we just pray all of this. Amen.